This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Welcome back to the Collector Car Podcast. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. I've got a fun follow-up to our Jay Leno's Garage, our deep dive we did a few weeks ago. And I will have a few more of these. So this particular episode, I'm focusing on his quote-unquote European classics. I do not define European classics as they are typically defined for Concours events. In my mind, European classics in Jay Leno's Garage is basically anything that's European. So I'm keeping it pretty broad it doesn't have to be pre-war. It's really anything in his garage as Europeans. I'm going to pick out, I don't know, 10 or 12 of these cars. If you don't hear it in this episode, it's because I'm saving it for maybe the racing episode where, you know, some of these faster cars like the Bentleys with the aero engines. I'll talk more about those in that episode. This will be more of the factory cars that are still, you know, mostly have the factory specs as Jay Leno restored them. Just give you a little bit more information about each model. I will include... Some of the Haggerty valuation trends for one year, three year, five year, like I like to do. And then I will also include the average value for each. So the descriptions will either come from Haggerty or from RM Sotheby's. I'll call that out as I go through it. Okay, before we get started, we do have a few updates. The first off is I'm really trying to do a strong push on YouTube by doing some fun videos. Now, the first series that just kicked off, it's more of the short one minute videos. I just launched it. It's called Keep Cash or Collect. So in the same vein as Keep Cash and Crush, but this is Keep Cash or Collect. So think of it as Buy, Sell, or Hold. So I do a quick one-minute review of cars at different car shows, and basically I tell you why I think you should keep these cars if you currently own it, if you currently own the car, why you should cash it in, or if you do not own this car, why you should collect it now. Go out and buy one. So those are fun. I've got 12 lined up. They just started one-minute videos about some cool cars trying to do one a day, so be sure to check out my YouTube channel. Also on the YouTube channel, there's some bigger videos. I did a review of a collection of 187 Chevrolets. It was truly insane. One of the best collections I've ever seen in my life. There's a GM Futureliner bus in there. There's something like 17 Copo Camaros. There's four of the Copo ZL1 aluminum engine block Camaros, the most in any collection in the world. There's every Corvette model from 1953 to 1975. There's every year of Chevrolet from 1912 all the way to 1975. It is mind-blowing, and it's one of the best collections I've ever seen in person. So be sure to check that out. That was posted about two weeks ago at the Collector Car Podcast. And if you're not currently getting my email blast, be sure to shoot me a note, Greg at the Collector Car Podcast or gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. I will add you to the list. It's a good time to get added to the list because I will be giving away a free Porsche for the weekend. Now, this is a promotion with Porsche Drive, and you will be able to get a Porsche from 15 different locations in the U.S., it's not going to kick off for a couple months, but be sure to sign up for the email blast so you do not miss it. All right, now let's talk about some of these cool European quote-unquote classics that are in Jay Leno's garage. The first car I'm starting with is a 1989 Bentley Turbo R. 
Now, this is per Haggerty. The Turbo R was the result of Bentley's decision to refine and improve the road manners of the Mousseline Turbo. The Turbo R debuted in 1985 and was a Essentially, a Mousseline, which in turn was Bentley's version of the Rolls-Royce Silver Spirit with a completely revised suspension that gave the car a cornering and braking ability more appropriate for the 300-plus horsepower that its turbocharged 6.8-liter V8 produced. The Bentley Turbo R was lauded by the press upon its introduction for delivering almost supercar-like performance, including a mid-six-second 0-60 to time and complete civility with a commensurate improvement in handling as compared to the outgoing model. Now, there you just saw it. In 1989, almost supercar-like performance was a 0-60 to 60 time in mid-six seconds. That's how sad the car scene was back in 1989. All this was achieved while cosseting the its occupants with reams of leather and multiple types of wood trim in the cockpit in the typical Bentley fashion. In all, 5,196 short wheelbase and 2,034 long wheelbase Turbo R's were built between 1985 and 1997. Now looking at some of the Haggerty trends, the one-year trend is flat. Three-year trend is flat. These have not moved much in the marketplace despite the huge run-up we've had recently. And the five-year trend is actually down 4.1%. So if you're looking at one of these cars... There's no reason not to buy one right now. It's been basically stagnant to slightly down the last five years. you got to imagine it's going to go up based on all the craziness that's happening in the market right now. Now, the number three value on these cars is $13,500. Your biggest concern with these cars is, are the repair bills. Check into what a front brake job costs on these just to make sure you can afford some of the basic maintenance. All right, the next one's a 1955 Bristle 403. Per Haggerty, the 400 series has some sporting pretensions and 700 were sold in four years until the aerodynamic 401 emerged in 1949. The wind tunnel tested 401, which is the precursor to the 403, had lightweight Super Lagara construction with aluminum and steel panels over an ash wood frame. The engine gained an extra 20 horsepower and top speed rose to 100 miles an hour. A 401 finished third in the 1949 Monte Carlo Rally and second in the Targa Florio. Bristol built 650 examples of the 401 and 281 of the 403 coupes between 1949 and 1955, while there were just 20 lovely 402 dropheads. Wow, those are pretty rare. The cars were well made and were a pleasure to drive, but they came at a big price. A 1953 Bristol 403 cost about double the price of a Jaguar XK120 Coupe. Wow, that's pretty insane. So Jay recently had a video highlighting this car within the last, I'd say, six months. So be sure to check it out on his YouTube channel. Now, the Haggerty one-year trend on this car is up 4%. The three-year trend is up 3.5%. And the five-year trend is up 4.5%. And number three value for a 1955 Bristol 403 is $43,400. I saw one of these in person at the Arms Sotheby's Elkhart sale a couple years ago, and it took me a while to figure out the hood, and it was one of those where you could pop it on the right to open it from the right, or you could pop it from the left and open it on the left. So I wasn't familiar with that before the Elkhart sale. All right, our next one is a 1962 Daimler SP250. I love these little cars. Per Haggerty, the British Daimler Motor Company of the 1950s, no relation to Daimler-Benz, was a dead brand walking, primarily making limousines and hearses for the UK upper class and royalty. A fiberglass body sports car with outrageous American-inspired styling seemed nearly impossible. 
but that's exactly what appeared on the Daimler stand in 1959 at the New York Auto Show. I don't know if that was truly achieved, as you'll find out here in a second. The Daimler SP250, originally referred to as the Daimler Dart before Dodge objected, possessed controversial styling. The car's gaping grille and whisk-like bumper overrides in particular have caused some to refer to the SP250 as an angry catfish, but performance was vivid, over 120 miles an hour, due to lightweight construction and a sparkling little 2.5-liter Hemi V8. Yes, that is correct, a Hemi V8. Disc brakes on all four wheels gave excellent stopping power. On the minus side, early cars, known as the A-spec cars, lack rigidity, and doors were known to fly open while being flogged over rough pavement. This was later corrected in 1960 with the stiffened B-spec cars, but heavy and vague steering plagued all of the model's guises. With production of just over 2,500 produced, surviving cars are prized, and surprisingly, several specialists cater well to the car's needs. Now, the Haggerty trend, one year is flat, basically flat, up 0.6, three years is down 1.8, and five years is down 4.6%. That's pretty amazing considering the recent trends. Now, number three condition car will cost you $38,500. All right, next, we are going to talk about the 1971 De Tomaso Pantera. Per Haggerty, when De Tomaso retired from race car driving, he turned to car manufacturing and by the late 1960s had given the world a bug-like four-cylinder Vallelunga and the radical V8 Mangusta Coupes, aesthetically interesting and competent road cars. If you haven't seen a Vallelunga, go to my YouTube channel, check out D&D Restoration. We walked through there, there was a Vallelunga hiding in the back. All right, in the meantime, Ford had been seeking to acquire an exotic car company, and they landed on De Tomaso's doorstep. The radical Mangusta was interesting in concept, but not quite right for the American market. But the car De, De Tomaso had in the works was the Pantera. A deal was struck. The Mangustas are really stunning cars. I like those a lot. The car debuted at the New York Auto Show in 1970, and with Ford's backing, the plan was to import 10,000 cars to be sold at Lincoln Mercury dealerships around the country. Styling for the Pantera came courtesy of the young Tom Tajarda, I'm sure I did not say that correct, at Gia and the crisp lines and long snout sat atop a pressed steel unit chassis. While its off-the-shelf 310-horsepower, 351-cubic-inch Cleveland V8 was situated midship and paired with a 5-speed ZF transaxle. Weight distribution was predictably biased towards the rear, 150 miles per hour was not out of the question, and the car came with amenities like air conditioning, which American buyers demanded. Early production issues plagued the $10,000 Pantera, with fit and finish leaving much to be desired. The engine tended to overheat, as did the cabin. We'll just crank on the AC. And while the American versions of the car lacked some of the power of their Eurospec sisters, when they weren't fizzling out, the Pantera shined. Car and driver said in August of 1971, As you skim over the pavement in the Pantera, you can't help feeling smug. You hear the engine rumbling along from its station back by your shoulder blades, a mechanical arrangement even Automotive visionaries will recognize as a little piece of tomorrow today and the looks, oh wow, like something that had just rolled out of the Turin show. Ford pulled the plug on the program after 1974 when fewer than 6,000 Panteras had been sold. De Tomaso continued to produce the car in Europe up until 1991, though the cars of the Ford years are generally the most sought after. They are absolutely beautiful cars. I love these cars. They have recently really taken off. 
And this is one of the few cars I don't mind if it's modified in tasteful ways, obviously to fix the heating issues, but just, you know, there's ways to make these cars look really cool. From a valuation standpoint, the modded cars, as long as they're done well, don't take a huge hit. The Haggerty trend on the Pantera, one year is up 11.5%, three years up 8.8%, and five years up 12.4%. Now, number three condition on this car rings in at just under $69,000. All right, our next car from Jay Leno's collection is the 1954 Jaguar XK120. Now, per RM Sotheby's, Given the Jaguar XK120 status as a true automotive icon, it is surprising to so many that the model was originally conceived and born as a limited edition stopgap model. That's pretty fascinating because I did not know that. William Lyons assumed that the post-World War II fortune of his company, the recently renamed Jaguar Cars LTD, which it was called SS, which that did not have good meaning after World War II, would be made on saloon cars that would sell in export markets, especially the United States. To that end, the new dual overhead cam, six-cylinder, 160-horsepower XK engine was developed to power a new line of sports luxury four-door sedans. As the new car was not yet ready for the 1948 Earl's Court Motor Show, it was decided that the engine would be launched in a limited-run Roadster before becoming a regular offering. That Roadster, of course was to be known as the XK120, so named for its top speed of 120 miles an hour. After proving itself on race and endurance courses around the world, the XK engine would become the mainstay of all future Jaguar products over the next six decades. The 160-horsepower, 3.4-liter inline six-cylinder engine was standard for the XK120. Also available was the 180-horsepower XK120 SE, special equipment specification, in addition to a C-type cylinder head, the SE was fitted with wire wheels, upgraded suspension, and dual exhaust. Now, the Haggerty trend for the latest one year is up 4.7%, three years up 4.1%, and the last five years up 11.9%. And the average price for this car is $102,000. Now, the next one in Jay Leno's collection is his 1958 Lancia Aurelia. Per Haggerty, today Lancia is best known for its sports and racing cars, but the Italian company also produced some of the first European sports sedans, including the Aurelia of the 1950s. Most Lancia Aurelias were delivered as four-door sedans, but a two-door GT Coupe and a two-door convertible were also offered. The latter two sportier versions are more highly prized by today's collectors. In all its forms, the Aurelia had a unique design. The front suspension used a sliding block, while the rear was independent with coil springs and semi-trailing arms. Four-wheel drum brakes are used to stop the car, and all Lanciel Aurelias were delivered with a column-shift four-speed manual transmission. 1954 saw the first factory left-hand drive version made, and the original Spider Roadster was joined by a proper convertible with roll-up windows in 1956. The 2,451 cubic inch engine was rated at 112 horsepower for 1957, and this was the only engine offered in the final years of production. The Haggerty trend for the latest one year is up 29.9%, latest three years up 8.7%, and latest five year up 15.3%. The average price for these cars in number three condition is $155,000. All right, the next car from Jay's collection is a 1962 Maserati 3500 GTI. Now, per R.M. Sotheby's, this car is so special, we have notes from R.M. Sotheby's and Haggerty. 
All right, from R.M. Sotheby's, the 3500 GT was the first Maserati road car to be built in large quantities. The elegantly shaped body was made from aluminum attached to a tubular steel frame, while the six-cylinder engine was derived from the 350S racing car. In 1961, triple Weber carburetors were replaced by a mechanical fuel injection system from Lucas, boosting the power to 235 horsepower. Just 441 3500 GTIs were produced between 1961 and 1964. Per Haggerty, for much of its existence as a manufacturer, Maserati was primarily concerned with motorsports, and this focus paid off with countless wins in Grand Prix and sports car racing both before and after the Second World War. Any road cars that Maserati has sold were very low volume, very expensive automobiles that made heavy use of parts from the company's existing racing machines. This attitude changed in the second half of the 1950s, however, as Maserati was stretched too thinly financially. Fangio had won his last world championship driving for Maserati in 1957, and Maserati had barely lost out to Ferrari in the World Sports Car Championship in the same year. But in 1958, the company announced that it would cease its factory racing program. To stay in business, Maserati needed a different approach. Racing car construction and service was still carried out for privateers, but Maserati carried out series production of a road car for the first time with the 3500 GT. With the 3500 GT, Maserati embarked on the path of building fast but comfortable production cars that the company is still on to this day. It also allowed one of the all-time great marks to stay in business. Haggerty's one-year trend is down 3.6%. Three-year trend down 10.4%, and five-year also down 10.4%. That's pretty fact, pretty amazing because these are gorgeous cars. Uh, let's see, average price for one in number three condition is $210,000. Uh, Jay Leno's video just posted semi-recently. I know, I think he mentioned he had a problem with the fuel injection and the transmission, so he had put in an aftermarket transmission, if I remember that correctly. So be sure to check that out. All right, next is a 1955 Mercedes 300 SL Gullwing per RM Sotheby's. The unmistakable flowing silhouette that marks the signature doors of Mercedes-Benz's 300 SL Gullwing would form the basis of a sports car icon. With this unique birdcage frame that facilitated the fitment of lift-up Gullwing doors, the 300 SL revolutionized both contemporary car design and sheer performance of sports cars made in the 1950s. Its lightweight construction from which it derives the SL part of its name, was intertwined with the power derived from the straight-six 3-liter M198 engine for an enthralling and spirited driving experience. In recognition of the United States as a critical market, the German mark launched the W198 at the 1954 International Motorsport Show in New York as the first Mercedes-Benz ever shown overseas before being revealed in Germany. The U.S.-based Mercedes-Benz dealer Max Hoffman would deliver more than 70% of the 1,400-300SL Gullwing examples produced between 1954 and 1957, distributed to his dealership sites across the United States. Haggerty's one-year trend is up 16.7%, three-year trend up 25%, and the five-year trend up 16.7%. Number three condition on these cars is worth $1.35 million. This has been has been interesting on these cars because there's a lot of them that were produced, but it's a bellwether car for the marketplace. And for the longest time, you could get a Gullwing for $1 to $1.3 million, but that ended about a year ago. And now that one 
million to 1.3 seems like now it's shifted up to the 1.4 to the 1.8 range. And with Haggerty calling one in number three condition around 1.4, that bears that out. It's just nuts what these cars have been doing. All right, next is another Mercedes from Jay's collection. I love this car. I've seen a few of these around, which is why I included it in this list. It's a 1972 Mercedes 600 compressor. Per R.M. Sotheby's, the Mercedes-Benz 600 series of ultra-luxury sedans, also known by their W100 chassis designation, are considered among the most well-engineered cars in automotive history. Produced from 1963 through 1981, the 600 series sedans were among the largest cars in Mercedes' lineup, matching their formidable size with ample luxury and refinement, including such ostinations as an optional rear window divider, with integrated fold-out tables, and a minibar equipped with bottle holders. Performance was also remarkable, particularly given the car's size and weight, thanks to a 250-horsepower, 6.3-liter iconic V8 engine, which enabled an advertised top speed of 120 miles an hour. Likewise, the chassis brimmed with the latest technology, including an adaptive suspension and four-wheel disc brakes. The impressive 600 was also born with an unusual engine drive hydraulic system operating the windows, front and rear power seats, fresh air ventilation system, door and trunk closure system, sunroof, and suspension dampening. While lesser vehicles used electric motors to regulate many of these functions, the Mercedes-Benz engineers believed that if cost was no object, hydraulic systems would be smoother, quieter, and longer lasting. Indeed, most 600s were sold to royalty and celebrities, for whom cost was no object. Some noteworthy owners reportedly included David Bowie, John Lennon, Elvis Presley, and Jack Nicholson. It's interesting, though. If the hoses for that hydraulic system fail, then everything I just mentioned doesn't work. The doors don't work. The trunk doesn't work. The AC doesn't work. The power seats don't work. The suspension doesn't work. So if you're buying one of these, you need to make sure all that stuff's been well sorted. All right, the Haggerty trend for the latest one year is at 4.8%. Three years, 37.1%. And the latest five years, up 43.7%. So big gains on this huge Mercedes. Now, number three condition, the average value is $94,500. All right, we've got a few more left here. We've got three more. All right, the next one's a 1963 Porsche 356 Carrera 2. Per RM Sotheby's, Porsche's Carrera model was an homage to their 1954 class victory at the final Carrera Panamericana race. From 1955 onwards, this would come to signify the most powerful production series engines produced. The second-generation Carrera model debuted at the 1961 Frankfurt Motor Show as the sportiest version of Porsche's new 356 T-6B series. It's interesting that it was the most powerful production series engine at that time. Today is the base model for the 911. <laughs> My Porsche says Carrera. It's not rare. It's not fancy. It's not powerful. It's your basic 911. However, this Carrera 2 name was slightly deceptive, as in truth it applied to two distinct 2-liter quad-cam flat four-cylinder engines, one of which was a true competition unit only available to privateer racers and VIP customers. These two different engine types were installed into divergent trim levels, the Grand Sport production version and the Gran Turismo competition car. Put simply, the GS was the production car used to homologate the GT for racing, even though there were many significant differences between the two, such as lightweight aluminum body panels. The production GS spec engine was good for 130 horsepower. The GT spec engine was the competition unit, 
and boasted nearly 160 horsepower through various modifications. The GT spec engine was further improved to 180 horsepower in works chassis and would soon become the basis of Porsche's revolutionary Le Mans winning 718 RSK and 904 Carrera GTS race cars. Public sales of the Carrera 2 began in April of 1962 and these cars became the first Porsches fitted with standard disc brakes. Some 310 Carrera 2 GS cars were produced. Now, Haggerty's one-year trend is flat on this car. Three-year trend is actually down 5%, and latest five-year trend is down 3.7%. Now, the average price of one of these in number three condition is $515,000. All right, next is a 1960 Triumph TR3. This is one of my favorite cars in Jay Leno's collection because it's a car his brother owned, and he has stated that it's the one he has the most he's most sentimental about because his brother owned it and his brother had passed away. All right, per Haggerty, the Triumph Motor Company launched the TR3 in October of 1955 as a successor to the TR2, and the new model was powered by the same 1991 cubic inch straight four overhead valve engine as its predecessor. The power plant had larger carburation, however, that pushed power to a whole 95 horsepower, and the engine was mated to a four-speed transmission. New cylinder heads were fitted to the engine during the first 12 months of production, which translated to five more horsepower. You heard that correctly. And top speeds for the TR3 approached. Didn't mean they achieved, but they approached 110 miles an hour. That's kind of funny. You could hit 60 miles an hour, but as long as you're accelerating, hey, you're approaching 300 miles an hour, just very slowly. (laughs) The car utilized front independent suspension and a live rear axle and initially had drum brakes on all four wheels. Within the first year, however, Triumph switched to front disc brakes, becoming the first production British car to do so. Externally, the car had low-cut doors and minimal weather protection, which underscored its purposeful sporting nature. It had a small opening in the front with a deep-set grille that did not compare favorably to competitors like the MGA and Austin Healey 100. Performance was on par, though, and the car was well-received. More than 13,000 TR3s were manufactured between 1955 and 1957, with 90% of those landing on American shores. The Haggerty one-year trend is up 4%. The three-year trend is up 3.4%. And the five-year trend is actually down 5.9%. So they recently started to go back up. A car in number three condition is worth $19,700. All right, one more, and I am going to close on another Porsche. This is a 1971 Porsche 911T. Now, from memory, I, I don't think Jay has a ton of Porsches. Uh, I don't think he has a 918. I know he has a Carrera GT that he famously spun, I think, at 160 miles an hour. I think it was on the Talladega Motor Speedway. And then he has a 911, and then he has the 356 I mentioned. So this is a 1971 Porsche 911T. Per RM Sotheby's, in 1969, Porsche instituted a series of changes to their 911 and 912 models, which greatly improved drivability. Wheelbases were lengthened by 2.4 inches, and flared fenders accommodated wider wheels and tires. For the 1970 and 1971 C&D series, engine displacement was increased from 2.2 liters across the range, which now included the base model 911T, the last 911 to carry carburetors. Haggerty's one-year trend is up 28.3%. Three-year change is up 23.2%. It's up 28.3% as well, and the five-year change is up 22.7%. Now, a 1971 Porsche 911T in number three condition is worth approximately 
$60,000. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining me. And please like and subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. As always, I will talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.